Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. And welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at all things royal, brought to you from Mail Plus HQ in Kensington. I'm Joe Elvin, and this week we're discussing rogue royals, from Harry and Andrew to an old uncle of theirs. Now, let's go to today's royal exile. That is, of course, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. A new interview in America's People magazine with Omid Scobie, a journalist said to be close to the couple, has made some claims that suggest the royal fallout is only getting worse. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, however, say that the book is unauthorised and its sources do not speak for the couple. So let's hear from the Daily Mail's royal editor now, Rebecca English, who has written about this in today's paper. Rebecca, the pair have been accused of reigniting a rift with the Queen, which they strongly deny. What, What can you tell us about this? Well, it might be helpful to uh, explain a little bit about the context. So, of course, last summer, Finding Freedom, the extremely flattering biography of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex came out. It's now being reprinted in paperback form and the authors have added an epilogue which will bring readers up to date with events over the last 18 months. But, of course, uh, it wouldn't be Harry and Meghan if it didn't come with a bit of controversy. And, lo and behold, that's what we have today. Um, And the suggestion in the book is that the couple were less than impressed with the Queen and the royal family's reaction to the claims they made in the Oprah interview in March. And um, they feel that unless the royal family are willing to own up to uh, what has happened, that they're not going to be able to move on as a couple. And as you rightly say, uh, we should stress that it is not Harry and Meghan saying this directly, that the book is quoting um, sources close to the couple. Yes. And according to those sources, they were upset with the Queen's wording in that statement, quote unquote, that recollections may vary about what happened with that that race row. And that seems to have gone down badly. It has. I mean, it was a very, very masterful phrase used by Buckingham Palace. And I know it was thought long and hard about at the time about the form of words they wanted to use. Um, They wanted to make clear that uh, they didn't uh, entirely accept everything that the Sussexes had to say, but were willing to work with them to move forward. But of course, uh, the book makes very clear that the couple uh, were not very happy with that reaction. And they feel that not just the royal family, it should be stressed the institution of the monarchy has not taken accountability for their actions over the last couple of years as as the Sussexes see it. And they've made very clear that that is a, a, a block to them trying to repair these very, very fractured relationships. If they are looking to repair this relationship and have some thawing of that relationship between the Sussexes and the palace, I mean, this revelation in the book is super unhelpful, isn't it? Well, well, it is. I mean, the thing is, Harry and Meghan and, and, you know, the book's authors and all of those that that kind of 
put themselves in Team Sussex have always been very careful to try and ring-fence the Queen in any of the criticisms they've made. But I think this is where they fundamentally always go wrong. There seems to be a lack of understanding that, you know, the monarchy is known as the firm. It is like a firm and its CEO is the Queen. And even by trying to kind of, you know, obliquely criticise the monarchy and, and, and not bring the Queen into it, they fell miserably in that because the Queen is CEO. So any... Criticism of the institution is criticism of her and her management style. Um, and I just know the royal family want to just try and put this all to bed and move on. But every time they do, it's back there on the front pages again and they're not able to do that. Now, in this uh, interview with People, Omid also said that we are apparently about to be seeing a lot more of the Sussexes. Well, someone kind of uh, uh, said to me yesterday, if this is what their sort of invisibility is like, you know, God help us all. Um, uh, they are planning to be more visible. To be fair, I think it is because uh, they're looking to really push forward with Archwell, their, their not-profit business. Obviously, you've got their Netflix productions coming out and presumably more Spotify on the horizon. But yes, apparently we are going to be seeing a lot more of the Sussexes in the future. Now, this book, Finding Freedom, the, the updated version, we know that this, this epilogue is coming. Is there going to be any more controversy from Omid Scobie and Carolyn Duran, do you think, in the updated version? I don't know about controversy, but they, the, the publisher, HarperCollins, has hinted there's going to be a lot more in it. They're going to address things like the couple's feelings around the loss of the Duke of Edinburgh, about, you know, the sad loss of uh, their baby when Meghan had a, a miscarriage. Um, so they are promising lots more revelations. It's due to come out on August the 31st, which is obviously the anniversary of the death of the late Diana, Princess of Wales. So, yeah, I would expect to be reading a lot more about it in the next week or so. And we'll be talking about it a lot here, but let's bring in our panel on this. Joining me this week are two of my oldest Palace Confidential friends and sparring partners, author and historian Dr Tessa Dunlop and the Mail's diarist Richard Eden. Hello, welcome to you both. Hello. Going to start with you, Richard, a new version of Finding Freedom. That's going to pour some like nice sort of like calming waters on the whole thing, isn't it? I don't know if it's just me, but I, I find it hard to take Omid Scobie seriously. I really do. Oh, I mean, he's going to be devastated to hear that from you, Richard. <laughs> a few months yeah. ago, the Sunday Times um, revealed that he was going to be publishing some new chapters, an updated version, and they'd be very controversial and make problems for the royal family. And he was publicly um, criticising the paper, saying, oh, what rubbish, you know, there won't be anything new, nothing controversial. And then here we are. But, you know, if we take at face value what he and his co-author, Caroline Durand, claim in this book. I, I find it disgusting, really. I, I really do. You know, essentially, Harry and Meghan just threw out these allegations in their Oprah interview about the racial thing. You know, one of the worst things that you can claim in this day and age, you know, putting it out there that someone in the royal family had made these racist comments. They didn't justify it. At the time, um, Prince Harry looked a bit ashamed, really, to be kind of making it. He looked awkward. They've thrown it out there. And now, apparently, they're angry that the response of the, the, the Queen and the royal family is, is too vague. Well, how can the royal family respond when they, they, didn't, they didn't say who it was? They yeah. didn't say what the context was? Even that, that masterful phrase, as Rebecca put it, re recollections may vary. They definitely varied between Harry and Meghan as well in, you know, in, in the timing of that race 
allegation. But have you never had an instance like that in your family? I remember absolutely on the right wing side of my family, an aunt, not by blood, I hasten to add, smashing her little fist down on the table when she discovered I was going to marry an immigrant, saying this country is too full. To this day, she denies that. And I very, and I can tell you as black followed white that that happened, but she says it didn't. But that may be the problem. uh, Well, that is exactly the problem. And I would contest that almost every family has had an equivalent scenario. And that's what makes the monarchy uniquely problematic and uniquely therefore appealing to people like us. Because on the one hand, it's a stiff British institution paid for by the state. And on the other, it's fallible flesh and blood. Mm. And doesn't every family always get things wrong? And therein lies the problem. They are two human beings on the outside of what they see as a massive, great, big, impenetrable bulwark, Mm. not getting the response they want. On the other hand, the royal family see these two giant, big, almost caricature figures now on the other side of the Atlantic making a song and dance and both feel bruised. But are you excited about the Sussexes emerging from this period of invisibility? (laughs) Yeah. I I can't um, believe you asked that with a straight face to Richard. I mean, we, um, you know, they, they made a great song and dance. There are all these stories appearing about how they were going to have this long period of maternity leave and paternity leave after Lilibet's birth. And then even then, every week there's been something, something commercial. I mean, to be fair, in this case, you know, this is Omid Scobie and his co-author. It's not, it's not them. But I think he's just making clear that there's a lot more to come. You know, we, we haven't heard the Spotify broadcast yet. Um, we haven't heard much about what Archwell's going to be doing. And I, I'm sure there's going to be lots of announcements. I think you, you must think that the Sussexes have got some things to, that they need to take ownership of as well. Yeah, for sure. But to them, they're the little people on the outside of a great big, and we all know it's easier to knock an institution. And as Rebecca made very clear, it, this is about the, the culpability or the accountability of an institution, not just the humans within it. And, and it's an arm of state. And that's why Harry and Meghan feel like they're small and um, uh, and vulnerable, the victims, if you like. And so any other allegations that go the other way, uh, they don't see in the balance in the round, because of course, there were those accusations of bullying, weren't there, that Meghan had been a bully. And I think they were being looked at. And that seems to have been quietly shoved under the carpet as well. But I am sure on on some sort of personal and somewhat naive level that they did expect there to be, even if it was just private, an apology. That was never going to happen. You know, an aristocratic family falling on their sword to the the people who've who've just abandoned ship. No, no Mm. way. And what do you think about the comments that Harry and Meghan made this week regarding the devastation in Afghanistan? Very interesting indeed. I actually had a tip um, from someone that that Harry was um, very angry about the situation in Afghanistan and very angry about the way it's been handled by Joe Biden. And I, I didn't run this story because Harry and Meghan never cooperate with us. They never tell us. So I didn't have any way of corroborating it. Mm. But that sort of rings true. I mean, remember, you know, Harry served there and I mm. remember him wearing a cap and on the back it said, we do bad things to bad people. You know, he, he was very much involved in, in that conflict. And so to see what's happened now must be very difficult. But then they issued this statement, which was very bland, I would say, very wishy-washy. And that's because, in my mind, they're very much in bed now with the Democrats and with, um, I would say, with the future of political ambitions of Meghan. I mean, they're really on their own, aren't they? Uh, in, in terms of everybody has come out and criticised Joe Biden and he wasn't mentioned in their statement. But I guess they can't 
make that political statement. Is that right, Tessa? I need to be clear about two things. I thought there's something quite poignant about them declaring themselves speechless, because A, they're never speechless, but B, in this case, they are effectively muzzled, because Mm. if they want to retain any kind of credibility and any kind of relationship with Britain, they can't make a political comment. They never came out overtly and criticised Trump. Okay, there was allusion to it, wasn't there, about fake news, and it was quite clear the way they wanted the wind to blow in the last election, Mm. but they never outright condemned Trump, just like they would never be able to do that vis-a-vis Biden. And that must be painful for Harry. But that's his role, not just as a royal, but also as a military man. I thought what was interesting is we actually had two statements. First of all, Prince Harry put out a statement via the Invictus Foundation for injured ex-servicemen and women. And, and that was quite strongly worded too, reflecting the, the real agony that they've been going through over the past week. Mm. And then there was another statement from Harry and Meghan. And I felt that was very much Meghan really wanting to have her say. And she drew in all these other world crises as well, like COVID and Haiti. It was all in there. It was very peculiar. That was a blunt tool, wasn't it? Because it was too big. The the message became sort of tripped over on itself. But I very much feel that Harry, his legacy, his military legacy is hugely important to him. He was on the front line and and I feel for the guy today. Mm. Let's move on. Well, the best known rogue royal of the 20th century was Edward VIII, the man who left the royal family to marry an American divorcee and live abroad, making commercial deals as a duke. If only there was a modern day parallel I could think of, but well, one man who might be able to come up with one is Andrew Lowney, who has written a book about the episode called Traitor King. We spoke to him. He was generally a pain in the government's, uh, for the government really throughout his life, and no one quite knew what to do with him. He mixed with very shady individuals, not just Nazis, but, but financiers, and he was an embarrassment. I think Wallace did love him. I think she was drawn to him when he was Prince of Wales. He gave her lots of jewels and she clearly mixed with lots of people and she was an outsider who was now the consummate insider. But I don't think she ever expected him to give up the throne for her. I think this was a sort of a little fling. Uh, the problem was she hadn't realised how besotted he was and when she tried to break off the relationship he threatened to commit suicide and she was stuck with him. And this, I mean, the first thing she said on the morning after their wedding was, you know, what are we going to do for the rest of our lives? Uh, and it's very clear she took herself, took lovers, um, and she didn't treat him well. He was often in tears because of her behaviour. But he liked that. He liked being dominated by a woman. Uh, he was, he'd been used to that. His parents were martinets. And uh, in some ways, that was the very subdom relationship they, they had. There have always been stories about Wallace and the, the China uh, document, uh, which was supposedly kept by the British intelligence services about how she learnt sexual tricks in the Far East. Uh, no one's ever found this, though there are certainly references I found to people having seen it. So, um, though it's clearly been destroyed, and I found a lot of material clearly been weeded, and certainly material weeded here that's available in other archives. But... Um, the sto- there's different stories. One was that he liked being whipped, another that he was a foot fetishist, another that he had premature ejaculation, uh, other stories that she was extremely good at oral sex, which is all he wanted. But it was a very bizarre relationship. But there's also an interesting story by a man called Scotty Bowers, who was a sort of procurer of sexual services for the Hollywood elite. And he claims, and I, I think he's absolutely right, that he provided boys for um, the Duke and girls for her. So they were also bisexual. 
Well, I think this is probably one of the biggest crises now with Harry since the abdication. Uh, and we also have Andrew on the side to add, to add to it. But um, very, very similar. I mean, here he is, a divorced American with political ambitions. We have the same debates about security and finances, the same curation of the story, the same uh, working with tame journalists and, and uh, uh, writers, uh, suing anyone they disagree with, uh, ex exploiting the royal brand, the, the concerns about status, uh, and uh, a weak... Uh, popular, uh, not very intelligent prince with uh, whose career in a sense should have been in the military. And we have other, all sorts of other parallels uh, between Harry and the Duke. I mean, the breaking of friendships, perhaps driven by the wife, the exile uh, where really the wife calls the shots and, and they really have very little to do uh, and their whole background in a sense has been taken away from them. So I feel very sorry for Harry that he in some ways is going through exactly the same experience as Edward and, and we saw how Edward looked absolutely sort of bored and sad really throughout his life. The royal family did uh, basically took the decision in 1936 that they would, they would just freeze out the Windsors, which is what they did. Uh, and in some ways that was effective because they didn't really have anything to say after a while. Uh, and they just became these members of cafe society and led this very aimless life. But of course, situations change now. We have social media. Um, there's the same division, I think, between British public opinion and American public opinion, which is balanced in the same way. Pro, pro Wallace and Meghan in the States and anti here generally. Um, but I, I don't think there was much they could do uh, then, and I don't think there's much they can do now. They, I suppose, could have given uh, status, but every time they gave them an inch, they took a mile. So in some ways, it's better just to draw a line in the sand and try and hope that they'll go away. Andrew Lanny's book, Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, is out now. Let's turn to our third royal prince who has found himself out of favour. Yes, I'm talking about the Duke of York, who this week was named as a person of interest in the US investigation into the late financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. I should add that the Duke has always denied any wrongdoing. But here's the Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. Rebecca, why is this new description important? So this is a very intriguing development, and we should stress from the start that this only comes from one source, but that's the Reuters News Agency, which is a very respected organisation. And they have quoted a source close to the uh, American investigators, which says that, says that Prince Andrew is being treated as a person of interest. Now, he's always been considered a witness up until now, a witness to Jeffrey Epstein's crime and that crimes, and that's why the FBI want to speak to him. Now, myself and my colleagues have spoken to legal experts in the US. Now, they've explained to us that while a uh, person of interest is not a really defined term in US law, what it does suggest is that the American investigators are examining not Andrew, not just as a witness, but whether a crime has been committed. Now, they've stressed to us that doesn't mean he would ever be charged with anything. And as you rightly say, Andrew has always vehemently expressed um, his innocence of claims made that he had sex with one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims, Virginia Roberts. But it, it, it does seem to suggest there is a slight shift in the way the investigation is going, uh, which I think is something to watch. Now, it was reported over the weekend that he was, quote unquote, cheerful and relaxed about the whole thing. Is that likely to have changed with this news? 
Yeah, I, I found that quite a bizarre claim, actually. I mean, uh, uh, if he is cheerful and relaxed, I, I, I think that's, I don't think he should be, put it that way. I mean, someone has just lodged a, a civil claim for damages uh, against him in the US, which obviously we discussed on last week's pro, uh, programme at length. Um, and, and, you know, as I said last week, this is a very, very dangerous time for him. Whatever option he takes in uh, reacting to that civil lawsuit, uh, you know, it could go one of two ways for him. So um, I don't think there's much to be very cheerful about uh, in Team York at the moment. And, and yet more strife for the Queen. Do you think he's listening at all to what the rest of his family have got to say about this matter? Absolutely not. I don't think he's listening to anyone. In fact, I know he's not listening to anyone. And this has been part of the frustration. This is something he's tried to deal with himself. Um, and the family feel very frustrated because this obviously is affecting them reputationally as well. And uh, there's frustration that he's listening to nobody but his legal team. And there's been some concern you know, privately, that his legal team are telling him what, what he what he wants to hear, that everything will be fine. And of course, you know, he's, he's slightly going to be a hostage to what, what happens in the United States. So, yeah, a very, very difficult time for not just the Duke of York, not just for, you know, the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, but also for the royal family as well. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Now, let's hear the views of Nigel Cawthorn, who wrote the book Prince Andrew, Epstein and the Palace. Here's what he had to say about the latest developments. Over a year ago, in June last year, uh, the US Department of Justice um, asked for the cooperation of the British government uh, under a thing called the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, which essentially gave uh, Prince Andrew 21 days to, uh, to answer the questions that the Department of Justice wanted put to him. If that didn't happen, then the Home Secretary was supposed to tell Scotland Yard to send detectives round to, to put the questions to Prince Andrew. If he didn't cooperate, then he was supposed to be subpoenaed and put in a, in a public court and asked the same questions. None of this has happened. Consequently, the British government is in breach of treaty with the United States. The fact that, that he's been declared a, a person of interest just kind of ups the ante. Um, there's, there's no actual way that, 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 that he can be forced to, to uh, cooperate with the FBI. However, we're supposed to cooperate. Prince Andrew is in a, is in a, a terrible situation. He, um, he can presumably hide behind palace gates uh, for, the, for the rest of his life. Uh, however, it, it taints the royal family, it, it, it taints him. We must assume if, that if he hides away, um, that, that, that he's, as I say, not as innocent as, he's, as he says he is. Prince Andrew's uh, reputation within the royal family and outside is, is badly tarnished as long as he continues to be evasive. One would assume that if, if he was innocent, that he would want it to, to proclaim it in public, in a, in a public court in, in the United States. Um, however, that the rest of the royal family seem to have kind of rallied round uh, and one could admire that, that their loyalty to, to um, the Queen's favourite son. However, from the point of view of the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, this must appear as honour among thieves. 
author Nigel Cawthorn there. Now let's bring our panel back in now. Tessa, whoever said Prince Andrew was relaxed and cheerful might have thought they were doing him something of a favour, but um, what that are your thoughts? It's quite extraordinary, the level of that man's hubris. You know, one of the main criticisms of his trial by media in that dreadful car crash Newsnight interview was his absolute inability to show any empathy for the victims. Do you mm. remember? It was all about his pain, the injury done to him. And by saying you're cheerful when these women are currently going through the trial that is bringing something to court, you know, resurfacing their real pain, it just looks so uncaring, like he hasn't got it. How can he have two daughters and not get it? You know, <laughs> let the penny drop. It's very interesting because, of course, he's born in an era where women who complained, you know, about inappropriate behaviour were just, you know, kind of sidelined and shuffled off. But there's been a revolution in thinking and therefore in behaviours over the last 10, particularly 10, but even longer than that years. It's like he's still living in the dark ages. Don't you get it, mate? This is really serious. I was sitting on an aeroplane when the news broke of the civil case against him last week. And it was the second page of the New York Times, one of America's most respected papers. You know, there in black and white, the scion of the British royal family, you know, and the, uh, and the accusations leveled against him, you know, they just make for the most appalling appalling headlines, appalling story. Yeah, but I know it's contested and you're innocent or proven guilty, but this drip, drip, drip. And the longer that he doesn't do what he said he'd do, which was fully cooperate, the drips are going to become well, great puddles. I, and it's a problem for the royal family. Richard, they, I think she's right. He keeps sort of like stubbornly, stubbornly trying to bulldoze these accusations or even ignore them, but they're only growing. I mean, the difficult thing is we still don't know what his response will be. I mean, we will find out eventually. And I think it's it's definitely got to the point where there can't be no response. There, there will be something. So we're still waiting for that. But, you know, I, I am sympathetic in the sense that he's in a very difficult position. You know, all these accusations are made... He, like, even by saying he's cheerful or whatever, he gets more criticism. But why can't he just come yeah. out and talk? If he, if he came out and gave his statement, then he wouldn't be in a difficult position, surely? Well, I think it's a question of, um, it's always been a question of how does he do that? He doesn't want to be interviewed like some suspect, like some scalp. And we know One that the, the, the Americans, you know, since the, they blundered over Epstein, they, you know, put him in jail for a, a very short, cosy little term, let him out. You know, they blundered with that. Then they blundered again in letting him die in prison. And they want a scalp. And we'll, you know, we can see we've got the Ghislaine trial coming up. And Andrew rightly is very wary about that. And, you know, there's, it's very difficult. These accusations come up. It's like with Bob Dylan as well. We've had the same thing this week with old accusations come up against him. You know, whereas Dylan might be able to um, come to some sort of settlement or whatever, that's much harder for a member of the it royal family. But he maintains he's innocent. Um, I'm sure Bob Dylan does too. And the Queen believes her son um, that he's innocent of everything as well. Well, we don't so know what, we don't know what the Queen believes, do we? But we do know that the Queen's a mother and what mother puts their son out to dry. And there again, it's we're back to that flaw in the institution of monarchy that makes it so fascinating where we're talking about a real family, real flesh and blood, where your CEO is also the woman who gave birth to a scion but the, I, of I the mean, said family. You wrote recently that these accusations are doing more harm yeah, to the family than, than Andrew 
possibly realises. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Well, uh, this is a massive problem for Andrew. You know, uh, Roberts, Virginia Roberts, she's lodged a uh, case against him, a civil one in New York, um, and has long talked through her lawyers about going, you know, to call for accountability from the powerful, from this patriarchy of which Andrew is the ultimate symbol. And in days when photographs didn't lie, there it is, that very unfortunate photograph of a somewhat younger Andrew with a far, far younger Virginia. And it's desperately uncomfortable. He is a rabbit stuck in headlights in an institution we know only ever reacts too slowly to situations like this. Well, that brings me to my next point. Richard, the Queen is under such enormous pressure on this one, isn't she? She really is. And it does make you wonder how different um, Prince Charles would handle it if he was king. I think, you know, when you've got um, the Prince Andrew and for his mother, it's extremely difficult. And How how do you think Charles would handle it? (laughs) I suspect that he he would be harder. We've already seen Andrew step back from all his royal duties, and I think he he would be stripped of them. And I think that probably will happen anyway, eventually. But it will just happen much more slowly because the the Queen's Queen's our monarch. Do you think he would force Andrew, if one can force one's sibling, uh, you know, to be more cooperative? I think that's it's tricky because mm. no, you can't really force him to be more cooperative. But and I think Prince Charles, you know, he believes um, his brother's protestations of innocence as well. Um, but he can see the damage that it's doing to the monarchy, and and that's the last thing he would want. So he would want to see that firm action is taken. And I don't think anyone really does see a way back into public life for for Prince Andrew. Yeah, and the stripping of those um, honorary military titles, there is anyway this embarrassing difference between Harry and Andrew on that front, and it needs to be dealt with. And I'm always fascinated, you know, we always start front-footing on Meghan and Harry, when to me, the far bigger crisis is Andrew. It's the more long-term one, it's the more serious one, and it actually has very dark repercussions. In in a way, uh, Harry and Meghan are kind of the soap opera, if you like, and this is, this is pretty sinister potentially very sinister stuff and altogether it's very ugly mood music on the other side of the atlantic Mm. it's fascinating and obviously we will be following this story um as it happens and unfolds well but that is all we have time for today my thanks to rebecca english tessa dunlop andrew lowney nigel cawthorne and richard eden join us again next week for more palace confidential see you then (laughs) 